This is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Liz Gloyne, Senior Lecturer in Classics at Royal Holloway, University of London, UK. She is the author of The Ethics of the Family in Seneca, and most recently, Tracking Classical Monsters in Popular Culture. We discuss What makes a monster? Why ancient monsters are so fascinating? And what can we learn from studying ancient mythology? But before we begin, a quick note to say that you can listen to Dr. Liz Gloyd speak live on the topic of monsters, power, and control at Classical Wisdom's online inaugural symposium taking place October 24th to 25th. To find out more, please go to classicalwisdom.com. Okay, so... um... In chapter one of your book, you ask, what makes a monster? So I think this is an excellent starting point. And perhaps we should begin there. What makes a monster? Loads of different things make a monster. Uh, It really depends on what you're thinking about in terms of what the work a monster does culturally. Um, So are we thinking about monsters as things that help, uh, you know, something, things that we're afraid of, obviously, but where does that fear come from? Um, There's been some really important work done in the field of monster studies about um, uh, where what precisely the key characteristics of a monster are. So some of those possibilities include um, sort of being policing factors. So you don't do something because otherwise the monster will get you. (laughs) Sort of very familiar sort of one. Um, Categorization things, you know, uh, monsters exist because they they break categories. So uh, the centaur in classical myth is a really good example of this. You have humans, you have animals. And then the monster is the thing that combines the two of them and sort of breaks down the category, you know. So, so they're there to help humans articulate what category boundaries are in some in some interesting ways about the world. Um, they can be there to reinforce social norms. Um, they can be there to help us articulate fears of the other, whoever the other might be, and what a surprise the other tends to be women, people of colour, people who aren't like us in terms of religious background, whatever that might be. Um, And that then becomes in its turn because the other has become monsterized it monsterizes the other and then that sort of legitimates all sorts of unpleasant treatment uh, on the basis of monstering. Um, And sexual orientation obviously is sort of a very popular one. But uh, I mean, so so on the it's the kind of the social factors that come together to create monsters in some really interesting ways and monsters that are very specific to their cultures. Um, That's why in the modern era, we find so many types of monster that are really about a fear of not being able to spot the monster in time and sort of a, a way in which we can't we can't see the monster at all. So you have the serial killer, you don't know the serial killer is a serial killer until it's too late and the camera pans into the basement and you like, get the, the moment of revelation. Um, 
you have uh, the very close related uh, cousin to the serial killer, the terrorist, who is kind of weird because you kind of can spot a terrorist because often they have a different colour skin than everyone else, which obviously is a huge problem with racialising the monster. But then again, of course, the terrorist, you also can't see the terrorist and they sort of slip away. And yeah, so that, that, that pattern of racialising is sort of quite interesting because obviously people try and spot terrorists, but you can't, you misidentify people. So again, the monster always escapes in that sense. Um, you have people who are, you have films and horrors where the monster is the big faceless government agency who is, um, you know, looks like all the other government agencies, but when you go into the building, they are in fact engaged in some sort of horrible, I don't know, organ harvesting or whatever it might be, you know, those kinds of, those, those kinds of sort of films very much, um, oh, is it the Bourne conspiracy kind of stuff, that sort of, that sort of end of things. Um, you have the virus, which of course I say that now in the current, current, circumstance but yeah. so so many films oh, that one in very which, well. yeah exactly but so many films in which the virus is the the the, the monster the unseeable the unprotectable um, of course what the coronavirus does not do is turn people into zombies um, which of course is what it does in most of the horror movies but it's still that same fear of the invisible the, sorry the invisible um, and then sort of the fourth kind of trope which we're sort of seeing more monsters of in the contemporary world is um, monstrous nature so everything that's lovely and beautiful and wonderful and then mother earth bites back and you know there's a tsunami there's a sword there's a giant shark whatever it might be um, you know the, the nature getting its own back on humans who have you know ignored or overseen or um, somehow violated the pact with nature sort of very much kind of the the unseen the unseen monster in the in the um in the idyll perhaps might be one way of thinking about it those are all very modern fears and that they are very much focused on 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 not being able to spot a monster in time to respond to it which is a very sort of modern paranoia a very sort of 20th 21st century fear of not being able to control stuff in a highly controlled and structured society um whereas if you look at classical monsters how do you spot a classical monster it's got Extra three heads head. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> <Snake tail. laughs> exactly they, they are they're sort of very obvious and clear and straightforward and so when you sort of see uh, classical monsters used in popular culture they're kind of really reassuringly retro it's like ah it is a monster i could tell it is a monster a hero is now going to go up against it superb <laughs> so that's sort of another interesting way in that work in, in, in i guess you have some of the witches though that can maybe be hidden a bit better like Cersei or Medea or I mean they they look more normal but I guess they know they're witches like right from the beginning yeah and they're very straightforward and transparent about that I always sort of have I mean the, the thing interesting one I sort of didn't really talk about in the book for very very good reasons um are these figures like Cersei and uh, like Medea um who are human and monstrous at the same time partly because when you actually start looking at figures like them you actually also have to kind of come to face with the question of demigods uh, because they are semi-divine that's where they get their witchly power from in a lot of these things roman witches less so roman witches just a nasty um but they are human um which is sort of a they they are humans who do monstrous things as opposed to f distinctly monstrous races or people or and i think they are treated in a slightly different category they'd sort of be more in the line in contemporary 
um, fiction, um, contemporary uh, popular culture of the serial killer, a human who does a monstrous thing. That's kind of the category set that they sit in. And the ancient world is slightly more, not slightly more at ease, that's not quite right, but it treats humans who do monstrous acts and therefore are on the edge of the monstrous in a slightly different way. Um, and what I sort of wanted to really be focusing about, thinking about were those those creatures and groups and not objects, that's wrong. Those people and groups and, and, and other kinds of beings who were very clearly neither human nor divine, but in this other monstrous box. Um, because when I was sort of looking looking at this, I mean, I could I could read scholarship on the serial killer and how that worked in contemporary fiction and all the rest of it until the cows came home. But I, it, it was quite possible to read through all of the stuff in monster studies and monster theory that was that was being written without any kind of acknowledgement that a classical monster might ever have appeared on screen in the past 50 years. It just was not talked about in the literature. So I got cross and I wrote a book. Um, which is often how, how these things Excellent work. response. Whenever in doubt. That, <laughs> My best research comes from being cross. <laughs> so why were the ancient monsters so much more fantastic? Like why, I mean, were they just more creative back then? Or? Well, I think there's a really interesting sort of social process that happens. Um, and I sort of said that one of the things that we're uh, contemporary monsters are very much about is not being able to spot them. In the ancient world, there was a really, really strong conceptual link in between external appearance and internal moral orientation. You see it in the um, you see it in the Iliad, where Thersites sort of has the gall to stand up and try and challenge the generals and gets kicked down in response. Right? You can't possibly be saying something sensible because you are dirty and poor and impoverished and weedly. Look at us, great manly men. We are clearly correct. Um, even in even in the Odyssey, this like, like really foundational link in that if you look scrawny and weak and generally a bit icky, clearly that is also an external reflection of your moral inner character. And if you are bright and beautiful and well-fed and muscly and also have all the money, which means you can be all those things, but we'll put that to one side for now. If you are sort of lovely and well well trained and covered in olive oil, that means you must be good and noble and all these good things inside as well. Greeks called it um, kalos kagathos, the good and the beautiful. Um, and so obviously, for, for if you're thinking about monsters in the ancient conception, this is sort of an idea that carries on through antiquity and carries really carries on up until Mary Shelley. And I'll come back to Mary Shelley. Um, the idea that if you have something that is monstrous and horrible and awful, it has to look monstrous and horrible and awful is really strong. So if you are looking at a monster, which is an awful, terrible thing, it is going to look awful and terrible. <laughs> it's a conceptual link that, as I say, runs right the way through in various, even through Darwin, of all people, it still sort of sticks, sticks with that kind of idea. Then you hit Mary Shelley, who writes Frankenstein. And I, I do think in terms of sort of conceptions of monsters, it's sort of a bit, bit difficult to underestimate what Shelley does because she's sort of the first person who really starts to go, but hang on a moment, just because you look beautiful doesn't mean you actually are beautiful. Have you met half of history? Yeah. <laughs> she in fact says this. I like to imagine her saying this because it cheers me up. Um, but what she does is she gives us Frankenstein's creature, who is never a monster in Shelley's text, 
who is initially born or created or brought to life as sort of totally innocent, but looks absolutely ghastly. And what the novel does is it sort of traces his evolution into this thoroughly wicked evil figure through a process of nurture, not inherentness. He is initially as, as simple as a child. He's got no kind of predisposition to being wicked at all. But when people treat him as if he is that kind of awful monster, then he's sort of conditioned and has no response, no place to go. He has no good choices. And then on the other hand, you have Frankenstein himself, who is sort of the vocal, you know, first, first personing this, who's a really awful person. I'm such a good human being. I don't have anything to do with body snatchers that might be morally questionable. <laughs> um, so she actually um, queers, and I use that word deliberately of Shelley, she queers the pitch of where the norm is and that connection in between the morally good person and the monstrous person and who who is who so the question of frankenstein's monster is sort of really about well who is actually the monster here and i think when you when you read through it you 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 go frankenstein is not a nice person frankenstein is not a good human being poor poor creature right and then that decoupling that she manages then flows through and you get things like dr jekyll and mr hyde so the wonderfully upright, wonderful Mr. Uh, Dr. Hy- uh, Dr. Jekyll, rather, who's terribly well, well respected. And then the, the awful Mr. Hyde, who is unleashed from within him when he takes his potion and goes and does slightly questionable things by the docks. Um, those, that kind of stuff. Um, and that decoupling becomes more and more and more apparent, um, which is where, one of the reasons where we, where we are. We've, we've, we've decoupled that sense of the, the monstrous being visually obvious when we see it. And and I mean, has that taken to another step? Like for modern readers, are they more interested in the modern, the monster or the hero? Like for instance, we had Madeline Miller on the podcast as well. And, you know, she wrote Cersei and kind of made her the hero. And I'm down here in Buenos Aires. So Borges fans might remember that yes. the is written from his perspective is a very more innocent victim rather than, than, a monster Absolutely. and I mean I, I wonder if we have a because we've taken the, almost the next step that we no longer can't see who is the monster we actually feel sympathy for the monster like they've, they've that's, created a monster maybe. yeah that's sort of a really important actually further phase that sort of has been developing in the last 40 years possibly she says squeaking slightly at it maybe a bit longer um in this kind of sympathy for the devil mode yeah. Where you it's sort of are, yeah. Well, where, where you're invited in to imagine what it's like, where people desperately want to become the monster. And that's one of the things about monsters because they're both extremely frightening, but on the other hand, they represent a desire that you can't be spoken. And so we enjoy in seeing the monster the desire that we can't be spoken because the monster is always going to be defeated and that unspeakable desire is always going to be conquered. And so it's all right to enjoy it for that moment because it's about to be. <laughs> shut on or slapped by the hero whatever it's going to happen whatever's going to happen um for the ancient greeks and romans they they they, they had no interest in being medusa no interest in being the minotaur enough that that was not a thing they would have wanted to do they had a big interest for instance in collecting um so the romans certainly did collecting evidence of monsters evidence of sort of monstrously sized beasts all of that kind of stuff and the, the kind of collector's view um but if it was a question about who who you sort of wanted or imagined yourself being 
you'd be much more likely, for instance, to think of yourself as the gladiator um, and sort of imagine yourself into the post of being a gladiator. And we've got lots of literature from um, elite Romans that does that kind of imagining work. But not about monsters at all. It's not a thing they do. Fast forward. Um, I'm going to go for the really, really cheesy bit, um, which is Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles in which we're a series of novels in which lots and lots of people go go on make me a vampire it'll be brilliant i really want to be a vampire it'll be great <laughs> um most of the novels are basically about people wanting to become vampires and then having to cope with having become vampires um which sometimes goes well for them and sometimes really doesn't and then of course that sort of trope carries on and for instance the twilight series which of course is all glittery vampires and oh am i going to be a vampire i'm not going to be a vampire go on then i'll be a vampire and then nearly be killed by a vampire baby um all, all of that kind of stuff that desire to become and inhabit the monster is a totally modern move and in some ways it's actually on the on the one hand i'm being slightly sulky about the vampire stuff i know i am sorry um but there's also some really powerful reclamatory stuff particularly taking place um, in the LBGT plus community um, where of course people have been monstered and othered and um, brutalized and pushed to the edges because of their sexuality but actually the power to reclaim the monster and say yes I am a monster that's fine <laughs> um, becomes a form of queer empowerment uh, and you see that very much, for instance, in Lady Gaga, who sort of talks about being the mother monster and all her little monsters. And of course, for kids maybe out in rural America, who, they, who, as far as they know, are the only person who's ever in this position for that to be sort of a mainstream cultural thing being said is, you know, hugely, um, well, in some cases, literally life giving compared to everything else that's cut all of the other messages that are coming around so in some ways the the fact that monstering has often been used to suppress non-dominant groups and reinforce patriarchal norms and power structures the reclaiming of the identity of the monster sort of in in the modern era is very much about sort of saying actually this is the like this is my identity yes i'm a monster hi mm -hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and 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 owning that as opposed to allowing oneself to be crushed by it, I think. Uh, well, that's really fascinating. I never really thought about it in that in that realm. Um, and I guess it is that part of the reason why the modern take of monsters is this invisible monster, but that there is still an interest in the ancient monsters. I mean, why are people still interested in the kind of more many-headed monsters that we see kind of in popular? culture today yeah i think that is a lot to do with how flexible ancient monsters have proved themselves to be they've proved themselves to be really good at being thought with and there's sort of a slightly complicated relationship here because partly because the stories of the ancient hero are so dominant and so big and so important and so if you're going to retell your story of theseus you have have your minotaur if you're going to retell your story of perseus you have to have um medusa in there somewhere frankly for quite a lot of these things it doesn't actually matter which hero you have and which monster you have there's sort of an interchangeability for some of these things so you're sort of hearing hearing one hero story and like hang on wrong myth what 
doesn't matter who kills them, and particularly in video games. Video games are very clear. Like, oh, we'll throw in a couple of monsters. Doesn't matter if you're playing this hero and they're from different narrative tales. They're all in the same world. Um, of sort of a pick and mix strategy. Um, so on the one hand, that's a very limiting afterlife for the classical monster, always riding on the hero's coattails. But alongside that, you sort of have various ways in which classical monsters have found themselves responding to other contemporary concerns. They've proved themselves to be remarkably flexible in terms of letting themselves being thought with. And part of that goes back to the flexibility of ancient myth, of course, in that you, you had a mythic structure which could tell a thousand and one different varieties. Yeah, and it was okay to have different variations. So I should say, every time you say flexibility of the myths, I'm imagining like Medusa teaching a yoga class or something. I love it. <laughs> Somebody's probably done a picture of that on DeviantArt. Yeah. Um, uh, but if, you, if you're listening to the podcast and you have done that painting, have done that yeah. picture, please let me know. No, no, it's um, great. She's like, hold the pose, hold the pose, and everybody's turned <laughs> it down. Yeah. yeah, love it. Um, so you have that sort of ability of myth already to respond and be retold in various ways. And that kind of usage continues, I think. And the monster as an independent character has managed to find space in which to move in popular culture in various places, whilst at the same time never actually losing connection to its classical roots, which I think is really extraordinary if you think that these are monsters that were created out of the brains of people living over 2000 years ago, that we still have a pretty ish shared view of what these things look like and how they work and how they operate. And they're still recognizably traditions in a way that other cultural figures just, just, just haven't. When we think about, Greek mythology, and, and you're saying about these differences, right? Uh, how we're re-examining that, and those deviations are showing us, you, you know, showing us something about our society. But as a general question, how does studying ancient monsters and mythology help us today? Like, what can we learn about ancient monsters that will make a difference in our lives now? I think the fact that people keep on going back to classical reception and keep on wanting to learn more about these stories and tell them again and what we want to, you know, where we want to go with these issues. And um, I think it tells us, I mean, this is a very hackneyed phrase, but I'll use it anyway, that myth is good to think with. Myth is a good way of exploring those issues and playing out those tensions and, and taking those those rough bits in our own society and 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 not quite thought experimenting because that isn't quite what I'm after, but using it as a vehicle through which we express express and expand our own understanding of what it means to be human. Now, obviously, the ancient world is hugely different to ours. It's 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 a different country. It's a different time. They are they are very different. They have different value systems. I don't want to sort of nod towards a, a world in which it's like, well, the Greeks were just like us, and therefore because they they, they weren't, <laughs> they were not at all like us. But through looking at the way that they construct and they understand and they think about the world, 
we then can use that same kind of reflectiveness to look at our own constructions, our own beliefs, our own positions and say, well, you know, does it have to be like this, really? Or is there something here that we might want to unpick a bit? Does the ancient world help us unpick it? Where where can we go with this? Um, so it's um, both about mythology, of course, um, but also just about antiquity in general. It's a way of helping us to critically engage with the modern world around us and start to think through some of those issues about constructions of power, constructions of gender, constructions of race, all that kind of stuff, which if you are sort of unreflectively living in the moment, TM, look like they're immutable and they should never change. And actually, there are a lot of questions about whether the systems that we have are actually the systems that we should have. Um, and classics and the ancient world is one way of starting to unknot some of that thread, I think. I love that. My motto is question everything. <laughs> it's a good motto. <laughs> no, but I mean, it is. And it's, it's interesting to, to be able to, by even just the concept of asking what is a monster, you know, you know and, and it's so obvious in the ancient world. Why is it obvious then? Why is it not as obvious now? To end with something more uh, light and more fun, what's your favorite all-time monster? Yeah, I, I waver on this one. I mean, part of me wants to say Medusa because she's awesome, obviously. Um, uh, the other part of me wants to say the Sphinx, actually, uh, mm. because um, I, I rather think of her as sort of the patron saint of mansplaining. Because the reason that Oedipus is able to defeat the Sphinx is because he is the first man who has listened to her properly. Everyone else has come and gone, oh, yes, I know the answer to this without actually listening and then gets eaten. Um, you know, she, up, up with not being listened to, she will not put. Um, whereas the second that somebody actually does bother to pay attention and listen closely and actually, you know, think through what she said and pay attention, he's able to answer the riddle. <laughs> um, and I think that from, from that perspective, um, the, the Sphinx is a figure who will not allow gendered self-superiority to stand without foundation is I think definitely my favorite monster I don't know if that's what the Greeks thought they were doing with it but that's what I think she's doing with it so I'll run with that <laughs> thank you for listening to classical wisdom speaks classical wisdom society members can listen to the entire podcast with dr liz glowing on classicalwisdom.com to learn more about Liz's books, including tracking classical monsters and popular culture, please go to bloomsbury.com. And if you'd like to listen to Dr. Liz Glowing speak live on the topic of monsters, power, and control at Classical Wisdom's online inaugural symposium taking place October 24th to 25th, please go to classicalwisdom.com.